Thank you, Pastor Tim, for that prayer supplication. And I want to invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bible, if you will, to Second Peter. We'll be looking at chapter 2, and as well, we'll be looking at the, the book of Jude, as Pastor Tim alluded to in the prayer. And certainly, it is challenging when you're straddling two books at the same time, but I believe they run parallel in their message, and I hope that you'll glean from both of these wonderful writings. <clears throat> you know, sometimes it's not easy to detect a cheap imitation. Uh, you think you're getting the real deal, and you end up with something that's less in quality, even though the price was, you know, right and prompted you to get it. But it, it just in, even in the natural world, uh, I have a small little garden behind my house. I hesitate to call it a garden. There's a few plants back there, but but I do have a um, I have a couple of thornless blackberry bushes. I like blackberries, and I like to raise things, watch them grow. And so anyway, earlier this spring, I noticed there was a, a plant growing up right close to my blackberry vines. And, and I looked at it, and it really looked like a blackberry vine. And I'm thinking, oh joy, I've got one of those volunteer plants, a freebie. I'll nurture this thing and raise me some more blackberries. And so I had visions of the crop expanding. So I pulled up some mulch around this little tender plant, you know, and examined it. And a little later, I went and put some fertilizer around it, and it was starting to grow. And so, you know, I was really proud of this new addition to the thornless blackberry family. <clears throat> so one day I was out there working with it, and I grabbed a hold of it, and it felt excruciating pain. And I looked upon closer examination, and I realized that this thornless blackberry vine was loaded with thorns. And I'm like my grandson, Asher, when things don't go exactly right in these puzzles, I, I would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not a blackberry vine. This is a briar. So I pulled that, went and got my gloves out of the garage, and I pulled that cheap imitation right out of the ground and threw it out there and hated I wasted my fertilizer on it. But, but on a much more significantly greater level, when it comes to the body of Christ, and we talk about the presence of cheap imitations, false teachers and preachers, prophets. Now listen, the stakes are much greater than just a little bit of physical pain. The Apostle Peter realized that. With the same passion that Peter addressed in 1 Peter, the impending persecution that the early church was going to face, Peter is now directing his passion to the emergence of yet a, a, a greater problem because it affected the very life of the body of Christ, those early churches to which he was writing at that time. And so, as you turn in chapter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, I want to just remind you that the Apostle Peter, as did the Lord Jesus Christ, as did the Apostle uh, Paul, as did Jude later, and we'll see that in the, the text that is written by Jude, which came along a little later than the Apostle Peter's epistles, but as all of these, Peter is, is expressing a great concern for the arrival of these false teachers, these false preachers, these false prophets. And so you see, Peter saw that these were men that were manipulated by Satan to invade, to infiltrate the church so as to mislead the people of God, to undermine the work of the kingdom of God in that early church. And with blazing hot and harsh language, Peter assails these evil apostates. As he's writing here in 2 Peter, and we've seen that in chapter 1 and the earlier verses in chapter 2. 
And at the same time, Peter is issuing a clarion call to Christians then and Christians now. Be on your guard. Test the spirits. Be careful as you allow people who call themselves to be Christians to assume roles of leadership in your midst because Satan has developed a very effective scheme of undermining the work of the church through false preachers and teachers. And so as we look beginning in verse 10 of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, I want you to see first of all, Peter identifies the arrogance of these false teachers, the, the very arrogance of these false teachers manifested in their attitude towards celestial beings. One of the first ways that, that Peter is, is showing how arrogant these, these imposters are is simply in their attitude towards celestial beings. So begin reading with me there in verse 10 of chapter 2. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. And you'll see this over and over. These imposters, they don't, they don't like authority, especially spiritual authority. They reject the authority of the Word of God. They reject the authority of the church leaders and even in secular authority. But look what he says also there in verse 10. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. And the word dignitaries implies celestial beings. We're talking about angels. He says, they're not even afraid to speak evil of angels. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So you see these imposters that have invaded the church are, are going around with boastful language attacking even those beings that are celestial beings. And now in Jude, in verse 8, it also says, Jude says, likewise, also these dreamers, that's what he calls the, the imposters, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. These imposters are recklessly rebuking spiritual powers that are far beyond their authority, far beyond their power. And, and so these spiritual, these spiritual imitators are revealing their spiritual ignorance, their biblical ignorance, when they are attacking these spirits, if you will. And when we're talking about celestial beings, when Peter's talking about these dignitaries, if you will, there in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, he's talking about the angelic beings. Those who are good angels, two-thirds of the ones that are originally created by God, and then the third that were taken down in rebellion with Satan that we call demons. You know, and so Peter's saying they, these, these imposters reveal their ignorance to the Word of God when they're on their own trying to rebuke these demons. They're trying to rebuke Satan. And it's very reminiscent to me as I think about 
sometimes contemporary Christians, particularly those of the charismatic movement, and, and they assume upon themselves or presume upon themselves that, that somehow they have authority that on their own they can take on Satan and they can take on the demons and they can speak directly as if to, to rebuke Satan and, and, and they, they, they talk derogatorily towards Satan, which I'm not a fan of Satan's, understand? I'm not a fan of demons. But understand this. There's only one who is in a position of authority and power to rebuke any of the angels, including Satan himself, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Jude is saying there in, in uh, his epistle there, or in his book, in verse 9. He said, yet even Michael, and this is the only occurrence in the scriptures we have of this exchange between Michael, who, by the way, is one of the archangels, probably one of the highest and most powerful angels in heaven and, and there was this time when he encountered the devil and there was a dispute over the disposition of the body of Moses. And even Michael, the most powerful archangel we know of in the scripture, didn't take it upon himself to turn to Satan and say, I rebuke you, I attack you, I revile you. He simply says, I a result to the authority of Christ. May Christ rebuke you. So Peter's pointing out the things that reveal how these imposters function. Listen, believers have no position, or now no position to rebuke Satan or demons. But not only is their arrogance reflected in their attitude towards celestial beings, but as we continue to look here in chapter 2, we see their arrogance reflected and mirrored in their instinctive and destructive self-indulgences. As we look there, continuing on in chapter 2, of 2 Peter, verse 12. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. And Peter is making a comparison there between these apostates. And he says they're like, they're like wild animals, like beasts. They, you know, they, they reveal how unlearned they are in the scripture. They come into the church and they, be, they, they pose as if they are scholars of the word. They, they pose as teachers and yet the whole time they're like brute beasts. I think of them as like spiritual bulls in a china shop. And they, you know, with their lack of knowledge and, and their own selfish desires, they are so destructive and they are destined, Peter says... They're destined, they're destined to the uh, eternal wrath of God. Look at what he says at the end of verse 12. And they will utterly perish in their own corruption. And there will be a day when every false teacher and every false preacher that has dared to rise up in the midst of the church for the purpose of deceiving the congregation and, and hurting the cause of Christ, every one of them will face the judgment that we see described in Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 when they are cast into that, that lake of eternal fire forever and ever. Their time will come, Peter says. But then as we proceed on in verse 13 in chapter 2, I want you to see not only the arrogance of the false teachers, but also Peter is exposing the very motives of these false teachers beginning there in verse 13. You see, Peter understand, understood this, that to understand 
the actions of these people, you've got to understand what's in their heart. You've got to understand what their, their motives are. And Peter focuses in on their unbridled lust, evil lust of the flesh, and their evil lustful desires. This is what's motivating these people then. This is what motivates these people today. False teachers today, false prophets today, false leaders today are motivated by these evil desires. In verse 13, Peter says, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count, count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime, they are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they, they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Holding your place there and bounce over to Jude in chapter and verse 12, you'll find Jude describing this group as well in verse 12. He says, these, talking about the imposters, are spots in your love feast while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. P Peter says, watch out. These people have infiltrated the fellowship of the church. They have the nerve to even come and participate in your love feast. They act like they're one of you. They act like they're godly. They act like they're a child of God. But all the time, Peter says, they're driven by their evil, lustful desires. I thought it was interesting because Peter focused twice on the whole concept of their carousing. I think I, I thought that was just a term we talked about, you know, around honky tonks and all. But these are people, Peter said, listen, not only are they carousing, not only are they out there getting drunk and, and, and engaging in all kinds of lewd behavior, but he says, look, they're, they're so bold and arrogant, they're doing it in the daytime. You know, I thought that was interesting because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 7, the apostle Paul says, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. So usually people want to be under the canopy of darkness when they're going out and getting drunk and going to honky tonks and getting in trouble. And I mean, as you listen to the news the next morning, most of the violent kinds of crimes that happen typically outside of some nightclub, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, and they usually happen around midnight or after. And I'm thinking, duh. I mean, <laughs> isn't that what happens? But these, these arrogant imposters don't even mind carousing even in the daytime. They don't care who sees them because, you see, they're preaching and teaching a false message of licentiousness where under grace you have all these liberties and it's okay to drink. It's okay to party. It's okay to have free sex. I mean, you know, grace gives us all kinds of... And, and Peter's saying, listen, realize... These leeches are right here in the church and they're partaking of the love feast and they're, be, they're saying one thing and doing another. And Peter warns there in verse 14, one of the true, at the heart of the motive of these evil imposters, he says, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable uh, souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and accursed children. Peter reveals that the true nature of these imposters, they like to come amongst the people of God and they look for those, those people who are in the church who are new in the faith. 
People who are not really grounded in the word of God. Those who he describes as unstable. And he, they, they like to use their lustful language and licentious ways so as to set little snares so that they can ensnare these unsuspecting members in their snares of, of adultery and, and all kinds of sexual scandals. And so I think how reminiscent this is. We've seen evidence of this in, the, in Christendom today. We, you think about in recent years some of the shameful and hurtful things that have been exposed about some of these false teachers and false preachers who call themselves men of God and yet when the truth be revealed they are caught up in all kinds of sexual lewd relationships and, and how hurtful that is not only to, to their family but to the church that they claim to lead and then also to, to, to the church in general because the, the, the untrained, the, the person that is uh, uh, unsaved and secular looks at, like, it looks at an incident like that and say, well, yeah, there you go. Just like all preachers, just like all churches, they're nothing, you know, but just, you know, uh, sex fiends. Peter's warning the church, be aware. These wolves are right there in your midst. But not only are they driven by these lewd and lustful desires, but Peter also exposes, and so does Jude, that a part of their motiva motivation is their greed and their covetousness uh, that drives them in their rebellion. In chapter 2, verse 15, he says, They have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. These, and then he goes on, and then also Jude talks about these people who are driven by their love for and lust for, for money. In verse 11 of Jude, if you go back there, Jude says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. In other words, they had no respect for God. They have run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit. In other words, they love money. And they have perished in the rebellion of Chorus. So both Peter and Jude compare these false teachers to Balaam. Now, in, if you go back, and I'm not going to take you back and read the story, but it's really quite an interesting story because long before the talking horse, Mr. Ed, there was a talking donkey that belonged to Mr. Balaam. Balaam, in, in Numbers chapter 22, Balaam was a, a prophet. He, he communicated with God as, as you go back and read because he prayed to God. He was, he was being recruited by the Moabite king Balak to come and pronounce a curse upon Israel because Israel had come through the wilderness there to the area of Moab and they were greatly afraid of the multitude of the Israelites knowing that, that they had wreaked havoc on other nations and so they, they recruited the services of this prophet to come and to announce a, a, a curse upon these people, the Jews. And, and Balaam, you know, told the king, the king offered so much money, and he said, well, I need to pray about it. And I'm paraphrasing, and, and so he did. He went and he prayed and said, God, shall I go curse him? And God said, don't you dare. Those are my people. They're blessed. Don't you dare. So Balaam came back to the representatives who came on behalf of King Balak and said, nope, can't do it. God says, I, I can't go and curse. So the king then sent word and said, look, Balaam, we'll up the ante. We'll give you, you name the price. Anything you want. Just please come and announce a curse on these Jews. And being the good Christian he was, Balaam, Balaam said, well, I'll, I'll go pray about it again. 
as if God's going to change his mind. And so Balaam goes back and he says, Oh God, hey, did you hear that offer? Is there, and, and yet you sense God's frustration with Balaam when he says, Just go ahead. Go ahead, Mr. Smarty Pants, who thinks he knows more than God. Go right ahead. So on the way to, to join King Balak to pronounce the curse, you know, Balaam's riding his donkey and God is, is furious. And he camps an angel in the pathway as they're going along. I mean, a gigantic angel with a flaming sword, ready to just, you know, uh, divide Balaam in half. And, and, and Balaam's donkey sees the angel, but nobody else does. So the donkey wanders off the path into the field. Balaam, you know, starts beating the donkey, gets it back on path. And so going along, the angel goes further down the road where the road narrows. And so there's two walls on each side. And the donkey, you know, sees the angel. Balaam doesn't. And the donkey moves over as far as he can to avoid the angel, crushes Balaam's foot up against the wall. Balaam starts beating the donkey again. And, and, and so the angel goes further down the road where there's no way to get around him. He's got his sword drawn. He's ready to, ready to give Balaam a divine haircut and more. And, and so as the donkey sees the angel standing there, Balaam doesn't see it. Then he starts beating the donkey. The donkey lays down. The donkey lays down because it doesn't have anywhere to go. And Balaam starts beating the donkey unmercifully. And it says, and the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And the donkey basically said, hey, Balaam, what's the deal? I've, I've been real faithful. I've never, you know, I've, I've, I've never deviated from the path. I've always done what you wanted me to do. You know, why, why are you beating me like this? And I thought the most incredible thing and probably, you know, the funniest thing is that Balaam started talking back to the donkey. <laughs> I guess I would too. <laughs> and Balaam said, look, you've embarrassed me. And about that time, the scripture says, God opened Balaam's eyes and saw the angel. And, and so Balaam has a reputation of being just a greedy man who calls himself a man of God who would take ahead of price. All he had to do is name the price. That's these people. They follow in the course of Balaam. And I think about how false teachers are so motivated, even today, by the love of money. Listen, folks, these who call themselves leaders in the church, these who call themselves men of God, and yet they are so consumed with materialism, they love their money, they love their luxury, they love their materialistic gains. Look, you don't normally find people in this crowd living in a small house wearing simple clothing and driving around in a Prius or Honda. They've got the big mansions. They've got the fancy wardrobes. They've got the diamonds galore. I mean, they've got, you know, chauffeurs driving around in limousines. Because, why? Because they love their money. They love their stuff. And Peter's saying, just look. Look, look at their lustful desires. Look at their greedy yearnings and motivations. He, and Peter says, be aware. They're nothing but modern day Balaams. And the church needs to be aware today too. I'd like to think that all the men standing in pulpits in churches across this nation or on television this, uh, today are, are, are unselfishly and, and dedicatedly thinking about the well-being of the church and, and the honor of, of the gospel and, and, and the glory of God. But folks, that, that's just not true. And people need to open their eyes to that. And Peter says, look at their motives. Look at their arrogance. Look at their motives and understand who they really are. 
But then Peter goes on and he, he unfolds the hypocrisy of this crowd. The hypocrisy of these false teachers who claim one thing and yet there's something else. Look in verse 17 there in 2 Peter. He says, these are wells without water. Clouds, or in some translation, myths carried by a tempest. To whom the gloom of dark, excuse me, darkness is reserved forever. Verse 18, when they, for when they speak great swellings, look at the contrast. When they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they are lured through the lust of the flesh, through licentiousness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome by him, also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last or the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then you, you find over in Jude in verse 12, Jude exposes this hypocrisy as well, beginning in verse 12. He says, These are spots in your love feast." While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds. Later autumn trees without fruit. Do you see what Peter's saying? These people are like, they're, they're like clouds that in a drought when you desperately need rain. And you're looking at the cloud and you said, oh great, here comes a good soaking rain. And all you get out of it is just a little bit of mist or no rain whatsoever. They're like fruit trees in the fall harvest season when you're expecting to, to benefit from the fruit and enjoy the fruit of these trees. And you find that they're absolutely bare, barren, and, 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 and practically dead. Peter says that's what these people are. They promise all these things. They, they, in verse 13, Jude says, raging waves of sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness. Jude says they're like shooting stars, meteorites, going through the sky, the night sky, shining brilliantly. Everybody's in awe at, at the light that comes. But then look how fast they fizzle and they just blend into the darkness. Peter says they're like these streaking, falling stars, wandering stars. Peter points, I mean, Jude points out in verse 14, going all the way back to the generation of Enoch, which is only seven generations removed from Adam. This is going way back in time. And God saw the presence of apostasy. He saw fake people, believers, even in his day. And in verse 14, Jude says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. Also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Go on in verse 16 in Jude. He says, These are murmurers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken by, before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jude is writing, and so he could have easily been referring to Peter as well as Paul 
as well as um, other uh, disciples. He said, remember the, the words of these that were spoken by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause division, not having the spirit. And so you see how Peter, going back to chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, Peter points out how these, these, these false teachers, these apostates, these religious imposters are so good at using all the great oratory skills that they have. They're, they sound so impressive with all of their words, but their speech is absolutely empty. Their, their motive is to lure those who, who are new in the faith or those who have just come out of the world who have experienced enough of the truth that they, they're, they're coming out of an immoral life into a moral life and then here are these false teachers dragging them right back into it, luring them back into sin. And Peter warns. What a warning he says there. He says it would be better. He says in verse 20. He said the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. In verse 21. For it would have been better for them not to have known the, the, the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now that would pertain to the false teachers. Those that knew enough of the truth. So close. So close to to knowing the truth and, and truly committing themselves to Christ and being delivered from the penalty of their sin and receiving the blessed gift of redemption and eternal life. And yet they, they stop because they're more interested in fulfilling their own selfish, greedy, lustful needs. But then think about the others that have been you know, that have stepped out of immorality, that are coming to the church, that are beginning to hear the truth. And they're so close. And yet through the teachings of, the unbiblical teachings of a false leader, they're being lured back into sin as if, oh, you don't need to be so serious like the rest of these Christians. You don't have to worry about abandoning, you know, uh, things like drugs and alcohol or, or, you know, it's okay to participate in abortion. And, and, and my goodness gracious, you can cheat if you need to, if you want to, because grace covers it all. And lo and behold, those who were so close to hearing the gospel are pulled right along with them back into that eternal judgment. And Peter says, oh, it would have been better if they'd never even heard Imagine being cast into hell and spending eternity. Folks, you may forget things in heaven. The Lord may erase painful experiences and memories from your mind of times on earth in heaven. But there's not a, not a word in the scripture that says that God erases not one memory of those in hell. People who are right now in, in, in the fires of Hades and will eternally burn in hell one day, they will remember everything that they experienced, everything they heard, everything they learned. Well, listen, hell's bad enough for somebody that goes there having not an inkling of an idea of God and Christ and salvation and eternal life. But imagine the agony of somebody who spends eternity thinking, I was that close. And I turned my back. Peter says the first is worse 
than the latter. It'd been better if they had not known. Statistics show that so many people who get so close to salvation, it seems, and then they turn their back. You know, and you've heard the stories. People that had a bad experience in church, or somebody hurt their feeling, or they didn't like the way the church did this. It doesn't take a whole lot to call some people to say, well, you know what, I just don't go to church anymore. And Peter says it'd be better if they never even heard than have gotten that close and be condemned to hell for eternity. If it's that bad for those who are innocently swayed by the false teachers, can you imagine the judgment that awaits for those who were intentionally following their own lustful desires and deceitful ways and were imposters and caused others to fall away? Just listen, it's important though, as you look back to chapter 2 in, verse, in, in, in 2 Peter, when Peter is talking about those who fall away, who turn away, who go back to the old ways, Peter's not implying there that a genuine believer loses their salvation. You know, one of the commentaries I was reading, he put it this way, perseverance is the mark of genuine faith. Perseverance is the mark of genuine faith. We saw that in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. In verse 10, chapter 1 verse 10, he says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. What things? If you are submitted to the Spirit of God and the fruit, and he goes through the fruit of the Spirit. He goes through the things that God's Spirit will produce in your life, like virtue and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly love and, and kindness and love. And he says if you are committed to Christ and you are indwelt by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God produces in you those, those fruit of godliness, the evidence of your faith, and you, you maintain. We saw that even in 1 Peter at the very beginning when Peter was writing there in the first epistle in chapter 1. In 1 Peter, Peter says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen you love, though you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full glory, receiving the end of your, your faith, the salvation of your soul. Peter says those who are truly saved are those who have been through the fire, who have had their faith tested by the fires of trials and tribulations and temptations, and they persevere. Those who are truly followers of Christ, genuine, authentic believers in Jesus Christ, they will persevere. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul was talking about there in 2 Timothy when he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The evidence of the genuineness of our salvation is in the fact that we stay the course. And that's what we need to pray for and ask God to help us with. But we are secure in our salvation and that's why the scripture says, work out your salvation, continue in the faith. These imposters fall away, just like a fallen star. They fall away, they fizzle out, and so do the people that follow after them. Well, in chapter 2, I want to conclude with verse 22. Peter uses Proverbs here to 
to describe their predictable fate. And so you see their shameful fate is predictably fulfilled in prophetic or pro proverbial warnings. Look at verse 22. And I thought it was kind of humorous, but then at the same time I thought, well, that's not good uh, to be talking about right before lunch. But verse 22, Peter says, But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. I know that just in thrill, in thrill, enthuses you as you look ahead to lunch. But Peter's quoting right out of Proverbs 26 when it says, As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Peter says, You'll, you'll tell these guys. You'll, it won't be long. Just like a dog will naturally return to its own regurgitation, and there you go, I'll just stop at that. But then he says, These fellows, they'll act religious, they'll be spiritual for a while, but just watch them, just observe them. Sooner or later, they'll return to their old, ungodly, licentious, and devious ways. But Peter wanted to add his own proverb, and so he did. Attached to this verse 22, uh, the proverb of the dog. Uh, Peter comes up with what I call the, pro, uh, the proverb of the parable of the prodigal hog. <laughs> he said, just like that dog returns to his own vomit, a sow, and for those of you who didn't grow up on a farm and don't know, a sow is just a grown-up female hog. A sow having washed, and I don't think a hog's going to wash itself. I've yet to see one go out there and take a bath. But let's just say the farmer says, you know, I like old whatever the hog's name is, I'm going to clean her up, put a little perfume on her, and put a bow in her hair, you know, or tail. And she can kind of parade around the house. And Peter said, look, watch her. Just watch her. Because sooner or later, she's going back to the walla. Because she's a hog. She's a hog. Peter says, look, the same thing with these guys. And so I, I, I pick up on that. And I, I, you know, as an old cow milking, hog slopping, dirt scratching, plow boy from the farm, in relation to these people, I said, no matter how you clean them up and dress them up, at the end of the day, a dog is a dog and a hog is a hog. That's profound. Y'all should be writing that down. Watch those who prop themselves up and profess to be leaders in the church and claim to be instruments of God. Watch them closely. Look for the signs of the arrogance that always points to them more than it does God. Look deeply and watch closely to the motives that drive them. What is it that causes them to continue their presence and their operation in the church? What are they seeking? And then listen for these signs of hypocrisy when they say one thing and do another. These are wise words that are given to us in the timeless Word of God. Words that we should take to heart and always hold up. You know, as I prepare the message and as God is speaking to my heart, I, I, more than once I found myself pausing and just thanking God. Thanking God for the, the, the young men that God has raised up in the midst of this congregation that have assumed roles of leadership in the church whose lives prove their authenticity and their dedication to the Word of God and to the cause of Christ. And how blessed we are to have these, these individuals leading and teaching. And I think about even in our children's ministry, and we have those who are teaching our children. What a crucial role of leadership 
And to have authentic, genuine people who know the Lord, who love the Lord, and are motivated by their, their desire to serve God. We need to praise God and thank the Lord for these leaders that God has raised in our midst. But at the same time, never drop in our guard to examine all who have that calling upon their lives. Let's pray.